Hello and welcome to A View from the Bench, a new podcast about my experiences and perceptions in the courtroom dealing with the trial of major cases over a legal career spanning almost five decades. I'm your host, Albert McKegg. The family was sitting around the living room after a great Thanksgiving meal and we were discussing some of the more interesting cases I've heard over the years, mostly as a trial judge, but also as an attorney. All four of the adult children, including the two children-in-law, said I should do a podcast on some of those cases. They all know I've been working on two separate series of podcasts of late, one being Praying with Passion, based on the book I wrote a few years ago, and the other, Honor and Courage, about the renewal of American values and American excellence. I will admit to being somewhat skeptical about whether folks would be interested in these kinds of observations, but the kids all assured me that a view from the bench would go over well. So with that kind of encouragement, I ask about a title, and the two marketing gurus of the four said that a view from the bench was a great title. So here we go. But before we get started, though, and because I still sit as a senior state district judge and I'm a lawyer, I have to do the disclosure routine. Apologies for that, but it's a necessary obstacle to overcome. In these episodes, I will not be giving a legal opinion on the law, but merely my impression of how certain laws fit certain fact situations. Also, nothing said in this podcast is intended to show or predict how I will rule on either future or current cases. The Judicial Code of Ethics prohibits my commenting on cases pending in my court or criticizing the actions of other trial judges. All cases that I discussed have been disposed of and I no longer have jurisdiction or authority over those cases. With those disclosures out of the way, let's talk about a view from the bench. The first case I'll discuss took place not long after I first took the bench. I call it the Scooby-Doo child sex case. Sometimes facts truly are stranger than fiction. I won't name the defendant, but I'll call him Scooby-Doo. He modified a Volkswagen bus, shortened it, and painted it to look like the bus in the Scooby-Doo cartoon and movie. He drove it around the area, was seen around local schools, and was generally seen as a kind of eccentric but harmless guy. In fact, he was kind of a clown. He started dating a lady who had a few young children. She was single when they met, and he befriended her and her children. Like so many folks falling on hard times, she desperately needed a friend, and he befriended her. I met her later through the trial of the case and that process, and she is truly a nice lady who loves her children dearly. As I said, she had fallen on hard times, and Scooby-Doo helped her out with some of her expenses. I don't know all of the details because that wasn't some of the information I was given. Suffice it to say, sometime after moving in with his family, several months later in fact, Scooby-Doo triggered an internet task force on the lookout for online sexual predators and an investigation started. Eventually, the task force contacted the local district attorney and Scooby-Doo was arrested on multiple counts of possession of child pornography. There were literally thousands of photographs and I can tell you that they would turn the stomach of some of the strongest of people that I know. In the investigation, it was determined that a lot of the pictures were of some of the children of the lady he had befriended. I'm not giving names or locations in order to protect her privacy and that of the now-grown children, but the photographs 
depicted Scooby-Doo having sexual intercourse and other sexual contact with a five-year-old girl, a seven-year-old girl, and a nine-year-old girl. He videotaped and photographed these despicable events and sold them on the internet for money and in exchange for other child porn pictures. When the district attorney took the Scooby-Doo case to the grand jury, they indicted him on the many, many child porn items, but also on multiple charges of continuous sexual assault of a young child. By that, the sexual abuse took place on children under the age of 14, and the abuse took place over a period of time greater than 30 days. The guy was well and truly caught, so in an effort to work a plea bargain, his attorney and the prosecutor worked out a deal whereby he would enter an open plea of guilty to some of the offenses in return for dismissal of others and he was given the opportunity to argue his case to me that he should receive lenient treatment. Another part of the deal was that the 25-year minimum prison sentence that was applicable would be dropped in favor of a five-year minimum prison sentence. With that agreement in place between the prosecution and defense, he entered his plea and we set about doing a full pre-sentence investigation before we held the sentencing hearing. Now, keep in mind that at this stage of a proceeding, the trial judge knows very little about a case. Judges are insulated from all of those facts and all of that in order to maintain an unbiased point of view. I had certainly prosecuted and defended child sex cases in the past while I was still an attorney, and I had already handled a few of those cases as a trial judge. So this kind of case was not new to me. Because this was an open plea, the decision on sentencing was totally left up to me. So after the plea, I was given access to some information through the pre-sentence investigation. The pre-sentence investigation, or PSI, is a complete background workup to give a good idea of the defendant's background, education, work habits, family, mil family military service, if any, prior criminal record, drug use, and just about anything and everything about a person. As the judge, I get a copy of that well before the sentencing hearing, and so do the prosecutor and the defense attorney. Both sides are also given an opportunity to supplement or add to the PSI. So going into the actual sentencing hearing, we all had a pretty good idea of the defendant's background. During the hearing, Large three-ring notebooks of photographs of pornography were admitted into evidence. They were disgusting, but there was also testimony from witnesses and the forensic interviewer who had interviewed the little girls. Frankly, there was a lot of testimony and evidence presented of what this person had done and the immense damage he had done to his victims. His attorney did a good job, but he really didn't have very much to work with. After all the evidence was in and the final arguments were given and a, plea, and a plea for leniency was made, I sentenced Scooby-Doo to life in prison on multiple counts. He's still there and won't be eligible for parole for at least 30 years. Frankly, due to the nature of his crimes, I doubt if he will ever make parole until at least 60 years are up. By then, he'll be almost 90 years old if he lives that long. Parole is not something that I as a judge can control. That is up to the prison system and the Texas parole officials.
This is one of those cases that I had no problem basically sentencing Scooby-Doo to die in prison. That may sound harsh or unfeeling, but some people are just evil, and he's one of them. He did appeal the case, and he's also filed some post-conviction writs in an attempt to have his sentence overturned. So far, he's not been successful, and I don't think there were any errors in his plea and in the sentencing that would cause it to be reversed. I'll give you a short footnote, and as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story dealing with Scooby-Doo. Some years later, I sentenced another child sex predator to prison, and he ended up in the cell next to Scooby-Doo. As inmates will do, they compared notes and found out that I was the common denominator between the two of them. The second inmate became friends with Scooby-Doo, and they shared family letters and other information, such as pictures and cards. All was great until the second defendant found out that Scooby-Doo was hitting on the second defendant's teenage daughter through letters and asking for pictures. As I said, you just can't make this stuff up. Prison authorities had to separate the two for the safety of Scooby-Doo. Well, I hope I haven't ruined the cartoon and movie of Scooby-Doo for you, but the facts of the case are just what they are. Child sexual predators will use any tool, any device, and any deception to get to a vulnerable child. In the case of Scooby-Doo, the bus turned out to be his method of operation. Later in another episode, I'll give you the anatomy of a child sex case so that you can see some of what goes on behind the events and within the judicial system on those kinds of cases. Be sure to follow me on Spotify and Apple Podcast and share these episodes with your friends. Also, take a look at Praying with Passion and Honor and Courage, also on Spotify and Apple Podcast. I'll see you next time right here. Until then, may God bless you and keep you, and may his face shine upon you and give you peace.